And we're live. Thank you for coming back for yet another episode. <laughs> Don't hate us. Doc's still here at this time. Um, one of these days, she's going to find a, a better hobby. But until then, she's stuck with us. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. Mostly that's just Doc, the dysfunction part. But uh, without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Marshall J. Moore, introduce himself to our listeners and viewers and for the record i have to say as far as introductions go your bio had me laughing <laughs> so i guess i better uh, recite it word for word then huh i mean or, or I, just paraphrase I, it's cool i just paraphrase works too all right i am marshall j moore i am an award-winning fantasy and sci-fi author who was born and raised on a tiny tropical island trained in mercenary and unarmed combat and once sold a thousand dollars worth of teapots to jackie chan and was once tracked down by a bounty hunter over a matter of overdue library book finds. That is awesome. Okay, so bounty hunter, did you get to like go hand to hand with him just for the fun of it? <laughs> uh, she called me on the phone and uh, was very nice about it, all things considered. But uh, I'm like picturing like Dog the Bounty Hunter showing up, and you get to wrestle him. That would have made for so much more of an entertaining story. <laughs> <laughs> so they really sent bounty hunters for three hundred dollars. They probably paid more for the bounty hunter. I, I mean, probably so. They they take their overdue fees very seriously at the uh, L.A. Public Library, apparently. <laughs> I'm sure well, that's a, that's a, LA. letter, a strongly worded letter probably would have gotten the point across a lot cheaper. Yeah. Um, now I know to check my spam folder in my emails is the upshot of that story. <laughs> All right. And so the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first met them. So this is one of the ones where Doc said, be here. I've got it scheduled. So here I am and it is scheduled. Uh, so, Doc, how did you first find Marshall? So uh, the lovely Jay Boyce came bouncing up to me and was like, here, meet this guy. Right after Boinking Beasties at Dragon Con, which I think really should be qualified with. They should be single when you do that after that panel. But um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so um we met then and then in the haze and blur of dragon con things got crazy but i did also find him on tiktok which he has amazing wonderful tiktok videos that are both educational and honestly watching him scramble and run through a, a bookstore trying to buy books is hilarious and adorable all at once i liked his we all um, get our exercise somehow I, I liked the one you did where it was like iconic books set in every city state in the union that was kind of cool yeah, we just finished that. There's some controversy there because people have strong opinions about their states and their books. Yeah, so the the other one was, uh, it came up in the pre-show, dear listener, but I thought that the, the TikTok was pretty cool. I liked the way he did it. Apparently his students found it when he was substitute teaching and they think he's cringe. So you should yeah, check well, it out. Links in the show notes and you can tell us what you think. I'm over 30. Of course I'm cringe. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair Anything enough. over 30 is no longer cool these days. Uh, I remember back in the day when I thought 30 was old. What an idiot I was. Fair, you still <laughs> think 30 is old. Then you remember uh, you're over 30. Yeah, I don't do the math, remember? It's the head trauma. It's okay. Sure. We'll pretend I was good at math before. <laughs> Whenever I get it wrong, though, I don't mention the TBI. I just tell people public school math. People, I did public school math. There are some good teachers in public school, but we're going to go on to the religion questions. 
You ready? I'm so ready. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? I was raised Star Wars, but married into Firefly. That counts. Yeah, conversion by marriage. Conversion by marriage, it happened. So what was it your favorite works. character in Firefly? Uh, it's kind of, okay, it's a toss Keep up in mind your wife might it. listen, so, I mean, just bear that in mind. Oh, she's in the room. Uh, uh -oh. <laughs> it's a toss-up between Simon and Wash. Okay. Those are, those are the two I relate most with, anyway. Okay. I could see I like that. Mal. I like Mal. Mal. I mean, Mal's, you know, the star-making role for Nathan Fillion, such as it is. Um, God, no, that, that show's so good. Like, how can you pick a favorite, though? He's River. as irreverent as all of us. Yeah, she's pretty cool too. She was on my on my list. Miles is irreverent as all of us wish we could be and get away with, but sadly, life and bills kind of prevent some of that. Yes. Yeah. I, <laughs> I also we like their like, misbehave. Yeah, I also like the uh, the iconic theme song they came up with for that. It, I mean, can't take this guy from so, Oh no, it's so good. I I read that Joss Whedon came up with it and like. 10 minutes or something and they just like recorded it on the spot like wow yeah it's so good okay so that's we're, cool. we're going to ask you and i have a feeling since your wife is in the room she might have a nerf gun ready in case you answer wrong on this next one <laughs> game of thrones wheel of the time or willow game of thrones um my i am sadly not really that exposed to either of the other two to be fully honest I think it might be a generational thing. I think I was just a little too young when Wheel of Time was big, um, which, like, I know it's been ongoing for X many years, but um, I, I was... Definitely you know, yeah, exactly. And I think I was, like, just on the cusp of being a little too young for it when it was at that, like, huge stage. So by the time I didn't encounter it as an adult, I was like, I've seen these tropes before. <laughs> So we try to pick ones that were both books and t uh, iconic on the screen, so that way we kind of, kind of catch everyone. So Game of Thrones is mm -hmm. easy because HBO made a thing, and then whatever. Uh, that's really grim dark though, so that's not everyone's cup of tea. Wheel of Time is somewhere sort of in between, and it yeah. did have the recent TV show that everyone loved to hate. So I mean, you know, they hate watched it. Uh, and then Willow, I was thinking of the original in the books, but apparently they've got a new one out, like a uh, revisiting the world years later. But uh, yeah. we looked, I just couldn't get into. Yeah. Um, like I said, I feel like it was just one of those things where like, if I, if that had been one of my early introductions to the fantasy genre, I would have eaten it up by, by the time I got to it. I was like, Oh, a farm boy original. Um, which, but like, I did meet the author, is... which was kind of cool. Oh, that's he spoke amazing. at my, uh, like my college Brown. English department. Yeah. He spoke at my college's English department. That's amazing. Yeah. No, that that's really cool. Like, don't get me wrong. It, it's a, you know, phenomena for a reason. Just oh, absolutely. And uh, like you said, we try to pick things to balance. We used to have the Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time, and Lord of the Rings, but it's kind of unfair to put anything against Lord of the Rings. I think. Yeah, like. So we had to try to mix it up. I don't think we found the perfect like trio yet to go with. Uh, with I'm it, but not we'll get sure there. that there's going to be a perfect trio. To be honest, I mean, maybe okay. Willow is a little bit like cult classic status, so maybe sub out that for Princess Bride. Ooh. Because that's a book and a movie. Yeah, it is a book and a movie, and, and it hits kind of the same tone as far as the dark to light spectrum. Oh yeah, I think we might do that, Doc. Remind me after the show, because you I'm know I forget. Remember. But you can listen <laughs> to the episode and remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it, the movie was was awesome. Marriage yeah, looks really good too. If you haven't read it, um, it's a little different. Uh, a lot of William Goldman 
William Goldman's uh, authorial voice in there. Um, but it's it's fun. Like it's a fun read. And, and if, you, if you watch the movie, there's the iconic. Everyone does their like the to show their nerd creds. They have their preacher read their marriage vows like that one in the show. Marriage, marriage. Cool. All right, all right, Doc. Before we get okay. any crazy, the students hate us. You have no cred, Jr. Just give it up. So, but as everybody here knows, we love both the fantastical and the science fiction. But which one? Is your favorite? Which one was your first first love? Uh, so for first love, um, honestly, probably sci-fi, and that is because I was a child of the '90s, and so my first big series exposure as a kid was K. A. Applegate's Animorphs, which is a series that is shockingly dark for its intended age group. Okay. Was that that was your first exposure to? Um, like independently reading on my own, like not like you know my mom reading to us at bedtime or that kind of thing. Like I dove into that series when I was entirely too young for it, full of you know teenage kids uh, turning in animals to fight a guerrilla terrorist war against invading mind controlling aliens and committing war crimes along the way, and uh, it definitely shaped the writer I ended up becoming. <laughs> Well, so anybody that's uh, served in a certain era that the, the we like to call the global war on terror, we know that it's not a war crime the first time. So I'm just saying. Bad joke, JR. No comment. Too We're soon? Edit that Adam Post, I assume. No, there's actually a guy that uh, it's a comedian that does a lot of funny YouTube videos, and that's his tagline. He's the fat electrician on YouTube, and it's all like military factoids because he used to be a grunt, just like I was. And that was so funny that he put it on a T-shirt, which I have ordered one of. It's not a oh, war crime. This is why JR isn't allowed out in public, people. I'm sorry. Um, it's it's one of those things where I just I wish I thought of it first, just like quack bang out. I mean, come on. Anyways, we're moving. On from JR's <laughs> issues. So, what was your first memory of speculative fiction? Was it reading it, watching it? I'm not really sure there was uh, much. It would have been my James. It would have been my mom uh, reading Narnia to me when I was a kid. Um, and that, oh, that your mom read good books. Oh yeah, she did. Um, like it's it's funny. I've just got such a like distinct memory of her reading. Uh, the Magician's Nephew, because she went through in the like one through seven order instead of the order of publication. Um, and me just being like fully enraptured by like um, Dickory and the Magic Rings and um, and just this story and like it really sort of opening up for me. And I'm, I couldn't have been that old. I could I must have been like five or six at the time. Um, and um, yeah, that's the one that stuck with me. I've got several editions of Narnia and I actually just recently went through and reread the whole series and you know it, it hits that warm fuzzy childhood spot. So did she do the voices? She did a little bit. Uh, my mom's not the most like theatrical type of person but she is very creative so she definitely got into it. I don't know it's, cool. it's been a few decades since my mom has read me a story. <laughs> Aww. You could fix that. Call her when we're off the interview. JR, not yeah. everybody has that kind of a relationship with that you have with your mother. No, I should give her a call. <laughs> if you're listening, you I should call your mother. I'm a mother, so I can't say that either of you shouldn't call your mother because the answer is always yes, except for yeah. when she's sleeping. <laughs> Time zones may vary. 
So, uh, so you've <laughs> talked about like your first memory of of speculative fiction, but what is it about that sort of umbrella that is spec fic and all that it includes? What is it about that that you love so much? I think it's the way that it opens up the possibilities and the stories that are being told. Um, like, obviously, I love like a good uh, thriller or mystery or you know action adventure set in the real world as much as anybody else. Uh, but once you introduce any speculative element, uh, whether it be like, oh, and by the way, there are ghosts or uh, there's thought police out there do preventing future crime, uh, it just opens up like a whole what if continuum of storytelling choices that uh, our real world physics are sadly limited by. <laughs> okay. So do you like, oh, I guess, if it's got um, the, the magic in modern, does that make it urban fantasy, Doc, or is it paranormal? Where are the lines on that? Magic in modern? Yeah, if you have it in modern world, like he's talking about the pre-crime stuff, it's sort of modern world-esque and essentially I magic. I think that would for... be called urban fantasy. They're trying to rename it into contemporary, but I think paranormal is less magic, more just ghost. Yeah, but I could be bit. wrong, and somebody is welcome to argue with me in the comments about it. Instead of arguing in the comments, they should reach out, and we can have an episode where we talk about it. Because I still can't tell the difference mm -hmm. when I read the descriptions. I'm like, yeah, is this paranormal JR, urban? You or? can't tell the difference between many colors either. I've seen your matching ability. This is true, but being colorblind doesn't stop my ability to read. But anyway, so how did your love of um, speculative fiction as a genre and all the possibilities, which you mentioned you love so much, how did that transition into you deciding to tell your own stories? Um, I was writing from an early age, like uh, pretty much as soon as I learned to read, I started, you know, making out my own stories, writing them down. Um, speaking of moms, we actually cleaned out my mom's house a year or two ago and found a bunch of my early attempts. Um, most of which, you know, if my, if the 15 year olds think my TikTok is cringe, wait till they see my six year old writings. Um, mm. but yeah, I've, uh, always been someone who wanted to tell stories and because of the things I was into reading and watching and otherwise consuming, those inevitably had some sort of speculative bent to them. Um, and as an adult, that trend continued. I think I can count on one hand, the number of like non genre fic that I've written. So do you ever foresee yourself uh, sharing those early works with readers? Just, uh, you know, a look into the mind of Marshall J. Moore? No. Um, if I hadn't sent those back to my mom, those would be burned. <laughs> okay. So many authors will let their own real life experiences sort of influence the way they tell stories. Are there any moments that you feel like shape you as a storyteller? Um, from um, from. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, I did, without getting too heavy on this, um, my dad was my absolute hero and I looked up to him tremendously and he passed away very suddenly when I was a late teenager. Um, so a lot of the emotional core of what I write tends to be um, characters dealing with grief and figuring out how to build a life out of loss, which I think is a really timeless and enduring theme to write on. So that inevitably in some way big or small works its way into most of my stuff so you've basically made your dad immortal i like it yeah exactly yep. as long as your Which books like are in he's never book. gone yep. the cozy mystery yeah, yeah. <laughs> i watched his tiktok doc i prepared you do yeah i'm um, so impressed that you actually did work 
No, I mean, you work hard. That sounded really much more meaner in my outside of my head than in it. Uh, it's okay, Doc. We love you anyway. Continue. Anyways, back to torturing Marshall. Yeah. So, yes. Have you had any cool fan art yet or somebody cosplay one of your characters? Uh, my wife has made a pretty cool digital art of uh, one of the main supporting cast members who gets a bigger role in the second book. Um, I'm very thrilled with how that turned out. And I'm excited for uh, more artsy people to find my book and make more fan art. Cosplay was so, really cool. So this episode, airing, this episode airs on March 16th because we're recording this early. So that means if they listen to this and they sign up for your newsletter, so March, April, could you uh, maybe share that in your April newsletter so that way they could see it if they signed up? Yeah, probably. Yeah, we could definitely get that that fast. All right, so we will put a special link for your for your <laughs> newsletter in the show notes. Uh, I know it's on your website, but we'll we'll directly link it, and they can sign up, and you can share with that that cool art because I know you didn't come prepared today. Thank you. That would be really amazing. <laughs> All right, Doc, back to you. Okay, so what was it like the first time somebody asked for your autograph? Uh, that. <laughs> so this is really fun. Um, my one of my absolute best friends in the world uh, was my best man at my wedding. Uh, he was also a vendor this past Dragon Con. Um, his family runs a digital tabletop uh, business. Basically, they have really nice, like high end hand furnished tabletops that they convert with an LED screen into like you know all your D and D matte digital asset needs. Um, oh, nice. It's called, yeah, it's called All Father A W L Father. Um, you know, little pun on Norse mythology. Uh, but they were Dragon Con this past year uh, as vendors as well. And so first thing in the morning, like 10 minutes before the vendor mart opened, uh, my best friend and his family came up and they all bought copies of my book. So they got to be the first Aww. ones, which was really nice. So if I recall correctly, that, that was the first time you'd even ever seen a real physical version of your book. Yeah, like 10 minutes before. Right. We, we had to basically placed like a special order with a uh, printer that the publisher hadn't used before to get some copies in time for dragon con. And I don't think it would have been possible if I didn't already live in Atlanta. <laughs> that can happen. There are advantages to all to Atlanta, despite all of its traffic. Yes. So. Living very close to the con is nice. So have you caught anybody yet reading one of your books out there in the wild? I wish one day that's the dream. So when we, that happens, how are you going to react? Are you going to like squeal like a schoolgirl, or are you going to play it cool? I, I'm going to like sidle up real casual and be like, Hey, what you reading? Is that any good? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hmm. I like the way this guy writes. He sounds handsome. Oh, oh <laughs> he is so subtle. Huh? <laughs> um, and they're going to be like, geez, guy, he's married. It says in his bio. Exactly. It's right there. And his wife is adorable, in case you haven't seen her. She's adorable. Yes, she is. <laughs> he has to say I love that how he looks over to the side. We now know where she's sitting. Blink twice if you need help. <laughs> um, so, what is your funniest fan interaction story so far? Uh, so, one of my day jobs 
jobs is as a substitute teacher. Uh, and last spring, I took a long-term assignment for a high school biology class. And um, the youths have, in fact, found my TikTok and judged me cringe. What do they know? Kids these days. Um, not biology. <laughs> oh, that's fine. You don't teach that subject. Yeah. You can't be blamed. So they would agree. Uh, so this is the part of the interview where we ask you, Marshall, for everything you have written. So can we get the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? Uh, yes. So I have written uh, the Rise of Resurrection trilogy. Uh, that is The Pale City and its sequels, The Ashen City and the forthcoming third book, The Awoken City. Um, I'm currently in process on a cozy fantasy about a pirate and have a few more projects lined up down the pipe. Uh, I've also written either 30 or close to 30 short stories that have been published in various venues. Um, about half of those are uh, some of the pro SFWA qualifying markets and others are more indie ones. Um, and those range from samurai hunting ghosts or samurai ghost hunters to uh, people being turned into corn through the horrors of bioengineering to steampunk machines run by ghosts. Sorry, ghosts are like a theme here. Um, just or or to like uh, the last dragon, unicorn, and giant on Earth watching Noah's Ark fade into the distance. <gasps> yeah, that was a really sad and fun one, right? <laughs> so yeah, so, uh, my so my short stories run all over the place in terms of a uh, tone and theme and content, but um, they're so, they're really fun, right? <laughs> first off, the good news, people, is he's old enough that he knows who to call if the ghosts come. Um, um, so <laughs> shut up, doc. I can see your face. So when you do these short stories, is it, um, like when you look at them, do you like, man, I really like to turn this into a novel or a series, or are you content to leave them all as short stories and you walk away? Uh, for some of them, it has been a little bit of a test run to see if the concept is worth expanding into a full um and usually if they get picked up it it might be um there i've got three different uh recurring characters i've had who have written more than one short story about so that have gotten published so clearly there's some market for them um i mentioned briefly there's a samurai ghost hunter one is one of my recurring ones um i'm i've got about 50 percent of a novel for that one written um but have i've got a it's historical fantasy and it's for a culture that's not mine. So I've got to do a lot of research to make sure I'm getting things, you know, not horrifically inaccurate. Okay. So I, I tend to, I can't write a short story that I couldn't envision 20 books in. Unfortunately, I only have so much time to write. So yeah, I, I feel your pain. Uh, yeah. And we do love short stories. So we'll definitely have to have you back to talk about some of those because like yeah. I'm pretty passionate. That's my thing. Uh, in addition to novels. But having said that, um, what was the very first thing you published? Was it a short story or did you start with a novel? It was a short story. Um, it wasn't the first thing I'd written. I wrote, um, I'd written two full novel manuscripts at that point. And in early 2019, uh, after doing the whole agent querying and rejection thing twice, I decided I need to get better at writing. And the way to do that is to change my focus to short stories. Um, it was a call for submissions for a little indie publication called uh, Grumpy Old Gods. So it was a retelling of like uh, myths from all over the world in modern day. 
so I came up with a story about a uh, demigod daughter of uh, Artemis, who is a private eye, basically my riff on the you know classic urban fantasy detective trope. Um, and they liked it and published it. And that was actually like the first thing I wrote to a submission call. So that was a huge confidence boost. If I was getting a bunch of submission call rejections, I don't know that I would have kept going like I did. Um, but I wrote two more uh, following her for that same series, Grumpy Old Gods. So she's in the first three books of that. And then the fourth one that got published in a uh, anthology from Flame Tree, which was my first professional write sale. Um, I, and uh, yeah, I, I actually do have a full novel for that one that I um, also attempted the agent queries and it did get a few uh, full manuscripts requests, but never quite uh, made it past that stage. So I'm revisiting that and seeing if I can tighten it and send it in for another shot later this year. So that answers the question you write mostly traditionally for published stuff? Um, yeah, I, uh, I mean, for the short stories, I cast a pretty wide net. Um, there was a period of time during 2020, uh, when most of my, uh, day job stuff was shut down. So I turned my attention fully to the short stories and I was literally every market that was open. I could find, I was writing a story for, um, these days I'm much more focused on either the professional paying ones or my longer work that I can promote myself. Um, but yeah, I'm, my two books are traditionally published, uh, the Awoken City and the or the Pale City, the Awoken City, Ashen City. Uh, those are all with Shadow Alley Press. So those are all trad published. Um, the Cozy Pirate Fantasy, I am planning on self-publishing. Okay. So you've got, I mean, I looked at your website and the list of covers for your various short stories is, is impressive. So is there any point plan in your future? And obviously IP rights are a thing. They revert at various schedules. Is there any plan at some point to put them all together in a collection? I would love that. And um, it would honestly be kind of a vanity project for me because uh, I, I find that for anthology short story collections by a specific author, people have to know who that author is. And uh, I don't think I'm quite there yet as far as my audience. Uh, but one day, a few years down the road, I would absolutely love to have them all compiled in one place and put out there. Yeah, but, you know, they've got to find you somehow. So if you have them already compiled. There you yeah, go. That's just yeah. one more title. Um, so while all of that sounds fascinating, and I could talk forever about short stories because I love it, Doc is rolling her eyes at me and telling me it's time to say, we are going to shamelessly shill for the man this time as we prepare for that lovely commercial interlude. From our Max Tuesley, author of Brains, the post-apocalyptic pick-a-path adventure with more than 60 endings, comes the Susie Steele adventures. Susie has a heart of gold, a set of bad dreams, and a hidden destiny. Six months ago, Susie's father went to work and never returned, leaving Susie to her hobby of chasing away nannies. That is, until the mysterious and glamorous Cassandra roars into her life, driving a red sports car and promising to be the best of friends. When Susie stumbles on her father's secret lair, a world of magic, ghosts and mysteries beckons. Can she discover the truth, avoid being expelled from school, and keep a ruthless secret society off her back? She's to have a ghost of a chance. She'll need the help of her best friends, one grumpy cat, and a whole lot of daring. The Susie Steele Adventures from R. Max Tilsley. Book 1, The Steel Trap. Book 2, The Steel Bite. Perfect for readers 9 plus. Available in print and ebook. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. Thank you, uh, uh, R. Max Tilsley, for sponsoring it. He's one of our favorite Aussies. So uh, mostly because we don't know that many. 
But uh, let's let's not dally and get right to the book that brought us here. So let's talk about The Pale City, which is the first book in the Rites of Resurrection series. So where did you get the premise for this universe? How did you come up with sort of the idea? Uh, so if I go way, way back, it came from me and one of my friends messing around with D&D uh, &D and me trying to create a actually viable necromancer. And then expounding from that, thinking about, okay, how do we make necromancers the good guys? Well, I mean, zombies are basically just robots, like, like, right? Like, you can use them the same way. And from there, I started thinking, okay, what is a society that uses zombies for its labor look like? And the entire concept of the world and then the story that I would write from that spilled out from there. Okay, I can, I can dig that. Um... So what uh, what version or campaign or whatever of D&D &D were you playing when you were inspired for this? Was it 5e? Was it certain yeah. setting? It, it was 5e, and it was really just, like, talking about stuff rather than us, like, actively doing a campaign. Just, you know, normal nerd conversation. <laughs> okay. I just know there's a, a lot of various uh, settings, and some, some are darker than others. So I was curious what flavored it. Um, but uh, before we get started too deeply on this novel... Um, specifically the the Pale City, what would the age range be for your audience? Because we have families that listen and sometimes they read together. So what would you say the age range for the Pale City is? Uh, 14 plus. There is a slight scattering of language, uh, a lot of violence, and uh, one scene that takes place in a brothel, though nothing explicit actually happens. Okay. Um, Doc, while you get the question, I will pull up the cover because it's too glorious not to share. All right, and it's so you, Doc. Can you, I mean, I really love this. Did you have any hand in this wonderful cover? Because it definitely feels very straight scene drawn from the book. Uh, it definitely is. Um, my publisher basically requested uh, I provide them three options, uh, mostly of scenes or at least cool images. From the book and i gave them three options and this is the one they picked i really like it i think it does a good job showing uh a our main character cassius um who clearly is a necromancer look at him with his little bone accoutrements and his magic and the sword because um, he's also a soldier and that you know clearly this is a guy who has both of those archetypes and the tension there is part of what i find interesting about the character um, it was a little tricky, I think, identifying that uh, the zombies behind them are zombies because they're um, all masked, which I'll get to when we start talking more about the world building and the setting, uh, which is why I wanted to have one of them like removing the mask to show that it is, in fact, a decaying corpse underneath. Um, and then we've got the you know looming cityscape in the background because the city itself really is um, like such an in integral part of the book that, you know. I gave it the title. <laughs> so I, yeah. I I really enjoy this one. I think it really stands out among all the science fiction covers, both because it's not dark or sorry, not science fiction fantasy covers. It's not dark, but it, it has enough color and it still goes with some of those Hallmark tropes. Like you look at this cover and you know, it's fantasy immediately, you know, there's sword and sorcery. So I, I enjoy it. I think it's good. Thank you. So he drew it himself. Uh, he, he's being humble and modest, but he oh, actually drew that. That is absolutely <laughs> my my artistic sensibilities are not visual. <laughs> no, but Shadow Alley Press does some very nice covers, and uh, they definitely 
uh, did good by you on that. They do. They did. Um, the the second and third books covers are also really cool. And it actually, they do a thing where um, it's sort of light in this, uh, you know, this is a very light toned cover. Uh, they get progressively darker, like the scene sort of changes from day to night, uh, which is really cool looking. Like the second one is sort of like dusk colors, oranges and uh, purples. And then the third one is like dark. So before I we move on. Before we move on to the next one, Doc, I have a question for you, Marshall. So obviously this one is, if I zoom in, it gets a little pixelated because, you know, the ones you can grab quickly on uh, on a Google search are generally the sales copy. So they're the thumbnail almost. Mm -hmm. um, so have you seen this in high resolution and is it so much cooler? Like what level of details, if it was high res, could they see? Um, let me actually pull up my physical copy. <laughs> Because I know these, you know, if, if they're high res enough where they've got the level of detail, I know a lot of people are like, I want that on a poster on my wall if they like books. So, but not all covers these days lend themselves to that, I don't think. Yeah. Um, it's actually, there's not a whole lot more detail than what you can see there. Um, there's a little bit more just um, shading, I guess, uh, when you zoom in on like the character and uh, their stances, the individual uh you know, both the hero and the zombies look a lot more uh, distinct from one another um, as far as their posture. Uh, and you can definitely, the one directly above the sword with this removing the mask so you can see it's a zombie, um, the face underneath it looks a lot more mummified, where on this it's just kind of a blur. <laughs> kind of looks like he's yeah. smiling, but I, I promise it's a death rictus. <laughs> okay. All right, sorry to interrupt, Doc. You can get back to your regularly scheduled questioning. <laughs> JR, you're funny. So, can you I give just us like zombies? All right, Jeez. I know, but we're going about ready to ask. Can you give us like a 30 second elevator pitch for the Pale City? Yes, all right. Uh, in a world in a city where all <laughs> of the... <laughs> making me laugh, throwing off my 30 seconds. All right, in a city where all of the dead are repurposed into zombie servants used for war and manual labor. The only person who can save his republic from a sinister conspiracy threatening to undermine the society he has dedicated his life to serving is a wounded necromancer struggling to find purpose in his civilian life after an injury takes him away from the battlefield. So do you dive into what that means for life and death when even in death you're not free? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of the driving uh, world-building question of the book is uh, – what happens to a society where the dead are just a, another tool to exploit, um, another resource? Um, there's a lot of more nuances to the tension. Um, part of the reasoning that I use to come up with a city that uses necromancy as you know such a matter of daily life that no one really even pays it that much mind is that it would, by nature, have to be an extremely utilitarian society. So there is a lot of tension between uh, sort of utilitarian philosophy versus um, like the main character is part of a religious minority, which reveres the dead and their ancestors. And so a lot of the character's internal conflict comes from him trying to balance these two halves of himself as a soldier who serves this society that is fundamentally incompatible with the tenets of his religion. So do like what what can you tell us about your zombie specifically? I know it's a little bit of world building. We're going a little out of order, but like are they the fast moving ones like you see like I don't know World War Z or or are they shambling along? Um, are they decaying in which case smell is an issue cuz you know you got a bunch of rotting 
meat bags walking around. You have a thriving, questions. I don't know. No, those those are exactly the questions I was asking myself when I was coming up with like, how does this society function? Um, so they're not fast. Um, they're not exactly shambling, but they are definitely the like, you know, slow limbs stiffened by rigor mortis. Uh, you, they're used specifically in the book for like manual labor and um, of varieties that don't require a lot of like physical dexterity or cognition. Um, as far as the smell, I actually do pay some uh, mind to that. There was mentioned that um, a lot of them have uh, incense sensors either on their person or in the buildings where they are. Um, and then also there's uh, an alchemical treatment that they use basically to slow down the rate of decay. Um, I think I established somewhere in the books that it's like an average lifespan, so to speak, of like 10 to 12 years before they, you know, the natural processes catch up. Um, but yeah, these, these are all things that I did have to consider. Okay. All right, Doc, back to you. I'm sorry I interrupted again. No, that's fine. Um, we've definitely talked some about what makes this series special. It's You've done a very, I think too many people kind of go, ooh, Necromancer, they must be bad, and then continue on instead of really like, what do you do in a society full of them? Not everybody is an evil Necromancer. So what tropes did you really play with in Pale City? Yeah. So one of them is that um, exactly to your point of, you know, the pop culture image of a necromancer is a guy in black robes cackling madly while his skeletons tie a virgin to an altar. Um, and I went the exact opposite route of that, of this um, extremely utilitarian society where it's totally stripped of any of the gothic themes or aesthetic it's just in um in fact it aesthetically the world is much more uh, roman inspired because the flip side of that of like how do you have a society of necromancers that you can at least sympathize with uh, my thought was that okay if this is a society where the people are no longer in a agrarian society they don't have to devote all their time to maintaining that agrarian society that would lead to some more enlightened social modes one would think so it's actually a democratic republic which is not common in the fantasy genre okay i i'm trying not to laugh because i'm, I'm like bombarding this one for those who haven't can't see the chat jr is putting bad necromancer puns in the chat <laughs> i'm just laughing now myself. oh my god <laughs> There's more, but all right, we, we will uh, we'll try to stop this from becoming the silly hour. I haven't drank nearly enough for that. And instead, I'll ask you, um, aside from it obviously being fantasy and military fantasy, it sounds like, uh, what subgenres or genres do you think the story fits into? So uh, my favorite way to pitch it is to tell people that um, it's high fantasy, but it's wearing an urban fantasy trench coat. Um, as far as the structure and pacing and even the first person narration um dresden files is a big inspiration for me um so it definitely falls into it's a secondary world urban fantasy almost um which is not something we see a whole lot of um it's got elements of military fantasy and there is actually um a single flashback scene to his active service days um, which if I ever did want to do a spin-off series, it would probably be something following the more military aspects of 
the world. Uh, but it's it's mostly just straight classic high fantasy that just happens to take place in one location and involves a mystery. Okay. It's also got some political thriller elements. I can dig that. The um, the story. Now let's talk about the story itself. So we've you've hinted a little bit about the main character, but I don't think you fully flushed him out. So what can you tell us if you're selling your main character, uh, this this wounded gentleman? Like like, how would you pitch him to the to a reader to make them care enough to want to pick the book up? Yes. So Cassius is one of the city's legates, which are the necromancer generals responsible for leading the attendants, that's the zombies, into war. So um, he's wounded uh, prior to the start of the book, and he's a extremely conscientious, patriotic individual who takes his various duties and obligations very seriously. And part of how he's always defined himself is as a soldier in service to this republic. And so when his injury prevents him from controlling the zombies like he used to be able to, because there's a physical component to the magic, it's sort of a got a very um, martial arts kata-esque quality to it. He has to grapple with like, who am I if I can't do the thing that I have used to define myself? Um, and then what also makes him interesting, like I've alluded to, is the fact that uh, his religion, which is actually the source of the magic system that the necromancy in the world relies upon, is one of ancestor worship and veneration and is somewhat oppressed by the society, which he's dedicated his life to serving. Uh, because obviously, if all of the dead are just tools to be used and your religion, you know, requires that you venerate them then uh those two things are going to naturally come into conflict so it's that tension between these conflicting duties and loyalties to two things that he holds in equally high regard is where the fascination of that character comes for me so the the trope of the i don't even know if it's trope the kind of idea that a soldier coming back wounded and wonders who he is without the the, the uniform he wore that's I, that strikes close to home i think that's that exists in fiction because it exists in real life. So did you have any exposure to that? What made you decide to pick that as sort of the, the backdrop for his story? Um, so I grew up as a uh, brat. My dad was in the army. So I definitely have exposure to uh, a lot of military veterans and their families growing up just throughout my life. That was uh, normal. Um, and seeing various levels of uh, transition out of the lifestyle and into the civilian one. Um, from, from a more personal level, it comes with me having to, growing up with a very heavily instilled sense of patriotism and then coming to a more mature understanding as an adult of uh, where our country has fallen short through its history and living up to the ideals we profess as a nation. Um, it, a lot of this book is in informed by that kind of terms with the distance between America as she proclaims herself to be and ideally how we strive to make our nation and the actuality where we have fallen short of that. Okay. Um, okay. So was that, uh, given your exposure growing up, was that aspect of it cathartic to write or was it a little harder for you? I'd say it was cathartic. Um, you know, it's, these are all things that I've worked out uh, myself beforehand, you know, as a fully formed adult rather than uh, working them out through my book, which, you know, is another path I could have taken. 
Um, Don't judge. But <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but the, the character going through that uh, journey himself, and you know, not to spoil anything, but ultimately the conclusion he arrives at um, definitely was something that I hit that mirrors my own experience. Okay, that's one of the reasons that uh, the number of veterans that you know end up unaliving themselves is because they have that trouble making that reconnection back to, to life after. So yeah. I think it's a, it's a fascinating topic, but uh, we've talked about a little bit about how the society internally handles the zombies and such. How does the rest of the world in which this story takes place handle the fact that their, you know, enemies or allies are like basically stealing dead bodies and, you know, enslaving them? Uh, not well. <laughs> um, the the setting is basically that they are um, one very small, uh, isolated mountain range of uh, this main city and several outlying provinces, and everyone on all their borders absolutely hates them because scary necromancer is bad. Um, and that does tie into the plot, as it turns out. Um, like, like I said, uh, one of the flashback scenes is him in a battle on their borders uh defending themselves uh but the thing about being a army that 90 percent of your soldiers are dead already is it's real easy to replenish your ranks after every fight <laughs> this is true <laughs> yeah I, uh, it's kind of dark but i, I like it management jokes <laughs> <laughs> All right, so obviously, like the Cassius is a main character, but what about any secondary characters um, in the story? Do you have any that you were especially memorable for you? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, like I mentioned, the um, a lot of the inspiration for the pacing and tone of the story comes from urban fantasy, and usually there is some sort of cop or authority figure who is a nominal ally but has some sort of tension with the protagonist uh, because they're you know working within the confines of the system versus outside of it and so in this case uh it is horatia who is one of the city's magistrates um who was she and her brother were childhood best friends with cassius uh said brother is recently dead in the same battle that uh took cassius's mm -hmm. uh in that injured him and prevented him from being able to continue his soldiering. So there is a huge amount of tension between them as they have to overcome their personal obstacles with one another while also working together to solve this mystery. Um, I also really enjoy uh, Balani is an, another significant character. And that is the high priestess of his religion um, from which he has been apostate for a while. And he has to come to her seeking help. And there's, a lot of history and similar tension from an opposite side uh, in that relationship. So in this story, do the zombies have agency in that they would almost count as a secondary character or are they just more automaton machines that just happen to resemble humans? Uh, they're much more automatons. Um, that Yeah, they're, they're basically flesh robots was my take. Okay. All right, Doc, back to you. You're, you're up next. But I'm having fun making fun of you. And you're sharing all the jokes that I worked really hard to steal from the internet. Well, so. you know, it doesn't count if I just steal them from you. <laughs> That's your plagiarism I mean, I stole, issue. But, that's right, I already stole them fair and square. So, 
given all of this, if your characters found you in a back alley, how do you think you'd fare if they knew who you were? Uh, so my immediate reaction to this was, oh no, I'd be one of the zombies. Um, but as previously mentioned, he is injured at the start of the book and uh, I do Muay Thai for a living. So I'd probably be okay. That probably helped when you were teaching um, as a substitute. <laughs> you know, it gets you rowdy elbow. That's right. One Put your phone away. Knee. I mean, I mean. See, I now have everyone is a that uh, direct approach. So it works. Two by four to the I forehead agree. works really well. All right, Doc. Back to you. Um, back to you. So do you have a favorite character archetype that you like to use? Uh, yeah. So one of the ones that has always really appealed to me is... Um, in my initial label for this was like grizzled veteran, but it doesn't have to be necessarily like of the military. Although a few of the immediate examples I can think of, like Mal Reynolds being one, um, someone with a backstory and past that the, whatever the inciting incident character is, has to slowly tease out of them and get them to open up. Like um, Joel from the last of us, since that's a current thing, great example. Um, Mandalorian, uh, you know, character who has to slowly defrost their ice cold heart because of the arrival of someone who they are forced to love. That is probably one of my favorite archetypes. I feel like he's talking about my personal life. Or maybe he's confessing, but his wife's in the same room, so maybe not. All right. So... What can you tell us if there, if we haven't already covered it, because obviously you've given us a lot of the backstory and we've added a lot of, you know, uh, unplanned questions, but is there anything about the universe writ large uh, that is the the set piece for the Pale City that you that you haven't already said that you thought would be helpful for readers? Um, so obviously the central conceit of the setting is the tension between uh, the utilitarianism of the society versus the more sentimental, uh, spiritual and religious elements of his religious life and how that plays out across the story. Um, and especially once you start mixing in political assassinations and conspiracies, uh, the city itself, I think I don't really, I haven't really talked about enough, um, but really does play a significant backdrop. Um, it's super atmospheric. Uh, it's up in a very narrow mountain Valley, which makes them isolated and, you know, hard to attack. Um, and there's like a perpetual fog there. Um, and it's full of like these really tall towers. And since they don't have a whole lot of space, they have to build upwards rather than out, um, which really is a very fun uh, classic fantasy way for me to give it that, you know, big city Dashiell Hammett noir vibe. Um, and it's, you know, perpetually foggy and really the scene descriptions were so fun for me to write. And I think it really shines through in the book as far as, uh, establishing why the Pale City is significant enough in its own right to earn the title place. So when you, some people don't do it this way. Did you actually draw a layout for the city or you just sort of wing it as you write and picture it in your head? Uh, I have a rough idea in my head, um, but I specific, someone asked me not too long ago, like if I was ever going to do a map or if I had made a map and I was like, no, because then I would contradict myself in a later book and I would never hear the end of it from fans. That's fair. Oh, it's so, like you've met the fans. 
<laughs> so when you when you wrote this city, I mean, obviously you're not giving us an exact map, um, but was it inspired by any existing city or you were just sort of creating what you needed for the setting? So yes, um, to the first question, uh, but almost retroactively, the idea was that since it's like a high Alpine Valley, um, it would be sort of a Switzerland-esque. Like um, I've, I've visited Switzerland briefly um, when I was in college and was really just taken by how beautiful it is and how like you have these gorgeous rugged mountain peaks and the like looming over these beautiful lush rolling hills and valleys. Um, but then more recently uh, I visited um, Andorra on a trip uh, from France to Spain and Andorra, for those who don't know, is a very tiny country uh, sandwiched between the two, between Spain and France, um, up in the Pyrenees Mountains. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is the setting for my book. Like, it's the right size. It's the, the you know, the mountains on either side. It's the narrow valley with a river running through it. I was like, this is literally what I was trying to write. That's cool. So happenstance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, serendipity. Uh, that happens. I've talked to a lot of authors that, that they've inadvertently done that. And whether it's fact meets like, you know, the, the function meets form kind of thing, it just sort of happens. Um, even to the point where they designed like so, an author we know who designed a, a castle on a, on a hill and then they gave it to the artist and they're like, yeah, that's an actual real castle. Here's what it is. Here's the sketch. I'm like, Oh, oh okay. So yeah, it's kind of cool how that happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. The um, this uh, book is part of a series. There are currently three books out in the series. But what's next for for the resurrection? Is it the resurrection? Rights of resurrection. Yeah. What's next for that series? Is their story done at the trilogy? So, um, the slight correction: there are two books currently out: the Pale City and the Ashen City. The third book, the Awoken City, is going to be released in April. I believe April eleventh is the date for that. I must have seen the pre-order then. Okay. Yeah, no, the pre-order just went live like last week, so it's new. Um, this is the so. My thought is that uh, for a world-building central story, which is what this one is, you know, every story is going to revolve around either character plot or world. And in my case, it's world. Um, the central question is dealing with, you know, what does a society that relies on necromancy for labor look like? And I think that question is sufficiently answered by the third book in the series. So with these characters, uh, those who make it through to the end, I think their story is wrapped up by the third book and I don't have any desire to revisit them. Uh, that said, I, could see myself doing a spin-off series in the future. I know I've mentioned that um, there is, it's it's very tangential to the military fantasy side of it, but I could probably easily do a spin-off just following like zombie army on campaign and the necromancers leading them, but no solid plans yet. Okay. So we know that every literary universe, at least the good ones, have their own internally consistent rules of science, technology, and magic. So this is very obviously fantasy and magic based. But um, other than necromancy, what can we expect from magic in this universe? Uh, so it's all tied to necromancy and somehow. Um, the the rites, uh, which is where the title comes from, rites of resurrection, are, uh, like I mentioned earlier, a quasi-martial arts sort of magic system where basically you're 
puppeteering the zombies uh, through rehearsed uh, motions mm -hmm. that, you know, are basically shorthand for, you know, do a punch motion that's telling the zombie to stab or that kind of thing. It's almost uh, like a kata. Yes, very much uh, kata based. My, my martial arts doesn't have kata, but I've done enough of them that I was familiar with the concept and it made sense to incorporate that. Um, the There are deeper versions of it. Um, at some point during the first book, the main character uh, is able to assume direct control of them, like seeing through one of the zombie's eyes. Um, but that's requires obviously a lot more focus and concentration. Um, but it, it's more of a puppeteering sort of thing than uh, the traditional, you know, corpses down, raise the corpse. Although he, he can and does do that. Um, and then later into the series, it sort of delves more into the spiritual side of things. Um, one thing, the end of the very first chapter, he uh, uses his training to view the last memories of a dead person's life. Uh, which is not something most of the people in this world can do, but uh, that comes from his religious background. Um, and there's a few other necromancy-related and necromancy-adjacent happenings that occur in the second and third books that I can't reveal without spoiling. So it's all necromancy, but it's different kinds. So is the necromancy, is the magic in this world, is it innate to the person? Is it they're just born with it or they're not? Or is it a skill that anybody could learn? It's learned. Um, there's only a finite number of people who uh, are trained in it at any given time in his society. Um, and partially that's, you know, the idea is it's sort of the same idea as keeping, like I said, this book, the society is very Roman inspired and the Romans have pretty strict rules regarding like their generals and their conduct to prevent them from all, you know, staging coups all the time. Um, so like, for example, his position can never hold public office um, and they only train so many legates at a time to <laughs> prevent any of them from getting out of hand and getting ideas. Okay. Well, it didn't work out so well for Rome, but hopefully it works better in the Pale City. I guess we'll have to read it to find out. Is it, uh, is it an audiobook as well? Uh, not yet. I am hopeful that it will become one, but I'm not sure where the plans are on that at the moment. All right, Doc, we're on 35 because I've been going all out of order and messing you up this time. Turnabout's fair play. <laughs> Yes, I have noticed, believe it or not, but that's okay. You're just excited and it's adorable in that hyper puppy kind of way. So <laughs> do you have, other than the undead, do you have any uh, fantastic creatures in here? Uh, no, it's pretty much, it, it's humans and zombies and that's about it. Okay. So... I think at this point, it's kind of everything's winding down. Uh, is there anything we haven't touched on, though, in your universe that you want to talk about? Um, I'm trying to think. <laughs> uh, the whole city, the all three books take place in the city. Um, I, I touch on other locations and make reference to them, but with the exception of that one flashback scene, it it's all a single city location. Um but I do like the hints that I've dropped about the other places. So I, they might be worth exploring in future. We'll see. Well, you know, if this does really well with your fans and you may end up doing others, utilizing those other settings, hopefully. Yeah. That'd be very fun if it does. So is yeah. your cozy yeah. mystery set in this world? No. Uh, solely. So it's, um, it's cozy fantasy. Uh, which is a new and growing subgenre. 
uh, basically Studio Ghibli, but books is the way I would pitch it. Um, no, it's a uh, it's pirate centric. So uh, solely for the difference in tone between them, I had to set it in a completely different continuity. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, someone's got to get me. <laughs> All right. So clear, Doc, stop. Clearly the interview is winding down, but was there anything about the Pale City, the first book and the Rites of Resurrection that we didn't ask that you want to tell us before we uh, wrap this up? I think you guys got a real good slate of questions. And I'm, you know, I talked probably more than I should have about the world building process and uh, definitely managed to touch on the characters and the gist of the plot. Um, if you like urban fantasy, high fantasy, political thrillers, or any combination of the above, uh, check out this book dear listener okay and so uh with that being said this is the part of the interview dear listener where i remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms your reviews help the right readers find the right books so do your part people rumor has it when he gets his hundredth uh, review they send him a unicorn and he can make steak so his wife desperately <laughs> wants to know if they make a good steak or not so you wouldn't want to deprive her of that she'll stab him if you do <laughs> All Not right. everybody so, uh, has a stabby wife like Nick does, Jr. Oh, that's not normal? Dang, I thought I was the odd one. Okay. So, uh, Marshall, can you tell listeners how they can find you? And as usual, all the links will be in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my website, marshalljmore.com, is where you can find an up-to-date list of all my currently published books, my forthcoming books, and my currently published short stories. Uh, it also has a sign-up form to my newsletter and a contact form. Uh, as well as links to my other socials. You can find me primarily on TikTok at Marshall J. Moore Author. Uh, I am on Facebook at facebook.com slash KWAJ uh, Marshall, Quaj Marshall. Uh, Twitter at Quaj14 with a capital K, capital KWAJ14, and Instagram at Marshall J. Moore Author. So what is Quaj K-W-A-J? What does that mean? Uh, that is Kwajalein, the island I was born on. Oh, okay. That yep. works. So yep. were, you, were you there because your dad was stationed there or something? Yeah, correct. Okay. And last question for you before I give our socials is, what made you decide to make TikTok your main platform? Uh, that was my wife's mastermind. Um, she had been doing her research on you know, ways to self-promote and self-market. And I think she literally said to me one day, she was like, we're going to make you a TikTok account. We're going to make you go viral and sell your book that way. And it works. So I mean, like always, argue she was right. right. Make sure you write that in your calendar just in case you forget. All right. And you can find us, dear listener, at our Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Send all of your hate mail to docseska at blastersandbladespodcast.com. You can find us on our Facebook page where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast you can find us on our facebook page separate from the group if you uh, search for it and type it in and like and follow and do the parts we don't quite have enough to give it a dedicated url but three guesses of what it'll be when we get it 
and finally, we have our website, Doc, stop laughing. We have our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech and tech blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters, dash and dash blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can support the show and keep, keep the podcast moving. Uh, overhead does exist, people, and, you know, servers like to get paid when you use them. So if, if it's something in your heart to do, we would greatly appreciate it. And uh, you can also support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley again buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley be sure to put in the comment section that's for the podcast and i promise i will keep my co-host doc saska and nick garber duly caffeinated they will drink until their liver surrenders never surrender all right bring it home doc <laughs> thank you for spending some of your precious time with us this was for jr hanley the absentee nick Gar garber this was the Blasters and Blaze podcast. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. And enjoying our love of torturing JR because why not? <laughs> Along with all the cheesy, fandom, geeky, nerd stuff too that we all know we all love. All right, before we let you go, last question. This is the serious one. Determines if you get to come back. Pineapple on, pineapple on pizza, yay or nay? I grew up in the tropics, man. It's got to be yay. Yes! Oh, you're dead to me, Marshall. You're dead to me. 